Stanford University. Tonight's uh, uh, guest is uh, Professor Shahla Talabi, assistant professor at Arizona State University. She is, uh, by training, a cultural anthropologist. Uh, she has degrees from Berkeley and Columbia University. Uh, she has a wonderful uh, scholarly uh, career, as well as a wonderful or sadly wonderful or tragically heroic uh, life. And that's basically the story of the book, Revisiting Ghosts of uh, Revolution. Uh, she's going to be talking about that book, and we are very proud of having her as the first speaker for our this year's series. Thank you. Uh, as you notice, copies of the books are available for those who want to have her sign it. Good evening, everyone. Do you hear me well? Um, it's such a pleasure to be here, really. And thank you so much, Dr. Milani, um, particularly aside from inviting me and for making it so easy and smooth and wonderful. I want to particularly also thank Pasang for being such a great organizer of the events. I mean, she was so wonderful. And I want to also... Um, thank Iranian studies at Stanford University um, for, you know, making these events possible. But uh, I want to also particularly thank Dr. Milani for one uh, very uncomfortable situation for myself, and I want to say it in public so that make it really out there. Um, a few years ago, when I wrote this Mm, this thing that wasn't a book yet at the time. It was actually my honors thesis. As an undergraduate honors thesis, I wrote this. Um, Dr. Milani took time not only to read it carefully, but wrote 200 pages um, of what he thought could make the, um, this writing better and also told me at the time that he would be able to help me to publish it. And at the time, of course, I wasn't thinking about the publication yet, and I was thinking about going to graduate school and doing other things and my research and all that. And somehow, through all these years, I don't know, somehow I put that writing somewhere. And when I was revising this thing, it just somehow I completely forgot. Um, Dr. Milani um, thinks that it might not be accidental. I hope that it was accidental, but it's really uncharacteristic of me to be that ungrateful. So I just want to really say that I'm very grateful and I really uh, want to acknowledge um, your uh, wonderful, thoughtful comments and instructive, um, you know, um, points on the on that initial format of this. So having said that, um, as I said, I initially started writing about this um, in 1999. And then there were a lot of issues that kind of caused, caused me to kind of pause and not publish it. Um, many, many reasons. Part of it, unfortunate, the politics of the US. Do you hear me, Ben? Yeah? The politics of the US and Iran that I was very uncomfortable with, and I didn't want to um, kind of add 
to the tension by bringing something that I wasn't sure how I would be read. And that politics of reading and, and receiving was something I was very much um, uncomfortable with. But having said that, um, there are a few things that I think if I had any real conscious decisions that I made in writing and then later publishing the book are these few things that I want to kind of um, tell you about. Um, I think uh, one thing that it's been my preoccupation, as far as I remember, and particularly after my prison experience, and um, to just simply say that um, I've had, um, I guess, quite lengthy, lengthy uh, experience with that, about two years under the, Islamic, uh, under the uh, Shah's regime and about eight and a half under the Islamic Republic, makes it in, you know, kind of an experience that one can kind of think about what it means to think about compartmentalization, to think about exceptional situations, to think about ways in which human beings can be atomized, can be isolated, can be alienated. And, and, and I kept thinking about this, and the more I, I thought about it, especially in the context of today and what's going on, um, in, in the world today, um, the, the new movement that is emerging in the U.S., the movements that emerged before that in Arab Spring, before that in Iran, the, you know, all that that was happening, uh, just something c comes back to, to, to me. And that is, on the one hand, the attempt to isolate and make us feel as scattered little people here and there, individuals in our own, in, in ourselves. Even within ourselves, we keep thinking about all these different dimensions of who we are, of course. And there is a way in which, for example, torture has this effect on you of forcing you to think about your body and your, your whatever that is that you think, your soul or whatever that is, in this kind of dichotomized way, you have to let your body go. You have to kind of almost disavow your body, disclaim it in order to be able to hold on to something, supposedly, that is your, your soul. And, and this, to me, um, brought me back to this issue of capitalism at large, or the world we live you know, in which we have these categories about what it means to, for example, be a human being, so, and what it means to think about, for example, violence that happens to human beings. Um, in that, it distracts me. <laughs> There is a way in which, for example, violence of prison has been seen as absolutely exceptional, as a place that is not, doesn't happen in any other... Uh, it, people say, oh my God, how you've been through it. What has happened? And as I read the book again, for example, today, before I was coming here, I thought, okay, so I had places in the book that I'm talking about other experiences of violence. For example, I talk about poverty. I, I, I mentioned this one scene where this woman, uh, my classmate, at the time we were in our eighth grades, she comes, she's just an, you know, like 13, 14 years old girl. She comes to our door and she 
uh, we, I opened the door for her. She had something, you know, wrapped in a blanket. And um, she says she wants to see my dad. I call my dad. My dad comes and unwraps the blanket. Is an eight-month-old infant, frozen and dead. When I write that, you know, for some people, that what does that have to do with prison? What does have to do with my experience? But when, that day when I went back to, their, to that place to her mother, the mother was sad, but she was also happy. She said, first of all, she didn't stay to suffer longer, but also that one less moth would allow her to at least be able to feed other children. That is an experience that is as violent and as important and as significant to me that, for example, this prison experience I'm writing about. And I think that had enough to do with the way it made me think about prison and prison experience and deal with what's happening in prison. I remember when I was under torture, at the moment you don't really, you can't really think. You can't really put yourself in that kind of moment of reflection. But before that, I remember I would tell myself, what would they do to me that is worse than what I've seen these people that I know have gone through over and over, gradual torture for years, humiliation for years. What does it mean, for example, I thought to myself, for that friend of mine, that classmate of mine, when in front of everyone else, the teacher slaps her on, on the face because she doesn't have a new notebook. She had to write in the old one. So these were some of the things that I think has a lot to do with compartmentalization of, of our ideas about what is even violence, what is humiliation. Um, and I thought the moment we get used to that, the moment that today in our society, we see our neighbors, we see people who um, can go through life with those kind of excruciating humiliation every day, and we are okay with that. Something, the doors are open for any other prison. The prison is not just the walls that are created. That's one of the little things I've tried to explain while talking about prison. And that is this, in prison, and I'm gonna read a little bit of that part for you. In prison, you have your imagination. So despite the walls, despite everything that you deal, you're dealing with, the torture, there are sometimes moments when you have your imagination that allows you to fly out of those narrow bars of the cell and allows you to go and hear the laughter and see people loving each other. You can even enter to the cell of your lover and touch the, the aching body of your, lov your lover and try to heal the pain he's going through. That's the imagination. But if you lose the imagination, even if you're outside of jail, you are entrapped the way some of us usually are. And, and one of the things I've tried to do is to put myself and others in those impossible situations when one keeps thinking, what should I do? What it is that I have to do? What is 
the right thing to do at this moment. Sometimes these moments are small moments. We don't think about them because they seem simple. Okay, so, you know, this person is standing in line and I'm standing in line. You know, I can just simply go over and, and have my way. And who cares? It doesn't matter that much. And then the moment after, when you're in a moment of crisis and life and death, those little, you know, kind of carelessness, kind of careless moments come back to haunt, and you all of a sudden find yourself in those situations. So, not that I claim understanding my experience, but when people say, how do you think people are capable of being such monsters? How do they come to be what they are? I always try to somehow say, or at least think about those moments when I myself was conflicted, when I myself had to really remain in those moments that one does not know what is right, what is wrong. Not because one does not know what is right or what is wrong. It is clear what seems to be right, supposedly. But how much you can let go of yourself and see yourself and your existence in relation to the other. How much of yourself really is isolated within you. And that's part of the thing that I want to talk about. The second issue is the politics. We have this idea, I'm not political. This person is political. That person is too political. There is this distinction, again, this categorization of what is politics and what is not politics. Yes, if one is talking about being politician, I was never a politician. And I didn't write from that point of being a politician. But there is something very significant about the way we are told that if you do something that takes you to jail, somehow you're, you're, uh, you know, you're someone who has been an activist and somehow, okay, this is the destination. You're going to end up there. But the, the real everyday experiences of this different ways in which our politics, if we are aware of it or not, is involved in the way we live our lives, the, the ethics of our relationship to other. The politics of remembering something or not wanting to remember something. These are all in different ways, I think, important for us to think about it. Or at least that was part of what I was trying to do, to think about it consciously. So when you read the book, one thing that seems to be different from most of the regular memoirs, first of all, is that I didn't want to write at least in this one, a regular memoir to start, okay, I was arrested at this time, then it's happened, then that happened, and kind of go in this chronological order. Is that right? What I thought I was trying to do was on the one hand show that I was never separate from the rest of the people, that I never had a story of my own, that my story was implicated as others in mine. Aside from that, there was nothing just beginning at the moment when I was arrested. There was not a sense of this turning point where it was before and it was after and everything that was before had nothing to do with this moment and after. It were, they were all connected. Who I was entered prison with all the changes that, I, that, that, that was in me and there were all those different subjectivities so I wasn't just this one simple, you know, whatever person that knew exactly what I was. I was becoming, as, before I was arrested, and that 
same thing continued and later on. So let me, just to give you a sense of this, read you a couple of um, you know, pages that I had uh, kind of uh, put this here for myself to kind of give you a sense of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this connectedness. So for example, one of the um, parts that I'm writing about is about this woman who um, had gone through what the prison uh, chief, whose name was Haji Dawood, had, um, had um, it's good to see familiar faces, but it's also very distractive because I get so happy I can continue talking. <laughs> But um, so, so Haji Dawood was the chief uh, of, the, of, of one of the prisons, Qazil Hisar, and, and he uh, created this particular um, torture system that, that was called different things by different people, but was called by, by some women. Uh, he himself called it the, the human manufacturing machine. That's Gohe Adam Sazi. And he was supposed to basically take these women and men into this machine and then bring him down out, supposedly having turned them into his, his human, you know, whatever version of humanity he had in mind. This lasted for 10 months. The, the last people who were there were there for 10 months. I can't unfortunately say too much of it. I might not have time, but later in question and answer, I can say some. But here I'm talking about a small number of prisoners came out of this human-making uh, factory with their subjectivity still somewhat intact. Puri was one of very few women who left their place without submitting to Haji, Haji's condition, Haji was the chief, to collaborate uh, or at least renounce her past. Yet while she refused to be broken by the regime, mistrust of her fellow inmates grew inside her. She returned to the ward, but soon withdrew from others and remained in a kind of isolation that resembled her condition in the Dastgah. Dastgah was, again, that, that machine that was supposed to make them into human. This retreat to isolation was also pursued by a few others who had gone through the experience of Tabuta. Tabuta was another name, which basically simply means coffins. And the reason that they, they had these names is that they, they, had, they had created these very small cells. Do you hear me? Yes. They had created these very small cells, is that right, that were, were made of wood. And they were small enough that only fit one person in them. And the wall, the, the, the woods basically were almost up to here. So if you sat, you couldn't see around yourself. But anyone who was walking by could see you. So the guards was con were constantly walking by, and they had basically surveillance over you, and, but you couldn't actually see it because the entire day you were sitting by the wall, blindfolded from 6 in the morning to 11 p.m. And that's what basically kind of turned um, uh, all these women who went there either went insane or became collaborators, and very few left. Uh, intact, and this is one of the, the, the. This person, Puri, is one of those. All the names are, of, of course, uh, pseudonyms. I don't use real names. 
It is true that some of them explain this desire for isolation as a way of distancing themselves from other inmates, who they argued were unable to recognize the consequences of their adventurous actions against the regime. They, they argued that the, when these other people are trying to resist, they bring the, 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 the harsh treatment of prisoners onto everyone, because if one of you resisted, the rest of you would also be punished most of the time. So many of us would end up betraying our friends as most of, this was what they thought, as most of their friends had betrayed them. They recounted how some of the most outspoken inmates were broken in the Daska even faster than others, and how they turned into collaborators who reported menacingly on their former cellmates. Whatever the reasoning, the result was that in no time they retreated into a near solitude, once again after enduring months of isolation that Haji Dawood had imposed on them. The bottom line, as you see, is that when, even when the torture seems not to work, it seems that it, it has this effect that if you don't really fight and, and challenge, you might actually end up kind of becoming trapped by it. And that was unfortunately one of the um, problems that we, we dealt with while um, in jail. And let me move to a little bit of better uh, point of it, even though I want to read that little part. Um, and this is one of those places I want to just show you how uh, complicated this intertwined relationship between these moments of what I call institutional, I mean, it's like literally like a way of almost inculcating you into this particular character that becomes numb to violence because in so many different ways you see him in, in everyday experiences that the institutionalization of that real, real, reality that is really horrifying. I was six years old, I remembered. The dog was sadly wailing, running around with its eyes covered by the black scarf that the boys had forcefully taken from my head. It was a very cold winter, and the snow was over my knees. Four or five elementary school boys were holding big sticks in their hands, chasing the dog wherever it ran and beating it while hysterically laughing. The dog's voice was, was growing coarser as this sadistic game continued. The snow had turned uh, to bloody red wherever the dog walked. It was on its knee, on its side, on its back, and they were still beating and laughing. My voice had almost disappeared as I screamed to stop, uh, to stop them. I was smaller than them and only one against four or five. Over and over, I begged them to stop but they wouldn't. The largest boy was taunting me while beating the dog ever more even more hysterically. Others followed him in beating the dog and, and taunting me. They even repeated his words as if parrots. One of the boys said to me teasingly, you idiot, you are crying for this dog. Don't you know that dogs don't feel or understand anything? I wondered why he beat the poor dog if he thought it was not feeling anything. Was he lying to himself or to me? How many times 
have I heard this in prison, that we were nothing but, but brainless dogs. It was not surprising that Bakhtiyari, it was one of the guards, women guards, had forced Roya, Roya is one of the characters who had gone insane, and I tell her story at some point, to act like a dog. Under both the Shah and the Islamic Republic, the torturers forced the prisoners to play different animals' roles, especially dogs and donkeys. One of the torturers' hobbies was getting a ride from these prisoner donkeys. Again, part of the story that why I go there, when I go to this childhood story, is to show that interrelatedness. What I was trying to do was to say that these torturers were not, had not fallen from any other planet. And neither were we just all of a sudden these angelic human beings. So in general, what I was trying to show was that to show the, the, the moments, and I tell, like in one of the chapters, I tell the story of this guy who is mentally challenged. And as a child, he had uh, polio, so he's, he's, a, he's, he's lame. And so his colleague, his, his friends, his uh, fellow, um, uh, basically, uh, workers take him when he's in, in, a, in a town and it's, there is really this really dangerous river in Desfool. If you, any of you are in Desfool, know this river. Many of the, even the native people have died swimming in that current. There's a very rapid current there. They threw him into the river knowing that he doesn't know how to swim. They, of course, save him. They don't let him die, but he loses his mind. And I'm kind of just trying to talk about these, these moments and try to say why. What does it, what it takes you to kind of do that and what kind of pain you are suffering in, that you inflict on this other person. To show these moments and these uh, realities kind of brings us back to something that I hope that we think about today because for me, writing wasn't about the past, it was about today. And um, that is something that I'm hoping that I, I can get to talk about a little bit. But, um, One more thing that I, um, I want to uh, talk about, and I don't know uh, how much time I'm actually taking on this, but let me, okay. Here is after I have actually uh, After I take, like, talk about this girl who, whose sister dies frozen and then uh, all the other uh, people I'm talking about, all of a sudden I'm going here. And suddenly I'm nine years old again. My hands are so cold that I cannot hold the pencil. Hassan, one of my classmates, is in front of the class again with his cold hands open to the teacher's lashes. However, his freezing hands feeling with those sharp lashes cutting through them. We were living in this very cold, uh, we were living in this town that had really long, cold winters. The teacher calls me forward and asks me the math problem that Hassan could not answer. Should I say what the right answer is? If I respond to it correctly, I then have to spit uh, in Hassan's face or beat him. And if I refuse to do that, I would be beaten myself. 
I'm standing there in front of everyone wondering what to do while the teacher is staring at me with his wild eyes and the lash in his trembling hand. Of course, there was nothing wild in his eyes. That's how I saw as a child. But Go ahead, Shahla, tell him uh, the answer. I'm sure you know. Um, you are an excellent student. Don't have sympathy for this stupid jerk. What should I do? Should I spit at him or should I be beaten? What should I do? And then I move, still undecided and in shock. I'm standing in the middle of torture room where Hamid, my husband, Hamid's feet are getting more and more swollen with every blow of the cable. And, and then it's, again, one of those moments in the torture room when I have to, again, decide how to respond to this being witness to someone else suffering. And over and over again, one in jail has to think about this. Am I in isolation? And the moment you think of yourself as isolation, you do two different things. Either you let yourself go down, you become a collaborator, you cross the bridge, and when you cross it, there is almost no way back. There were people who left the jail, even left the country, later they committed suicide or they ended up in mental hospitals because they had collaborated. Some of them, of course, stayed, still work for the regime, still are uh, you know, doing well. Somehow they came uh, and somehow resolved their sense of whatever consciousness they had. But the others you know, ended up really losing a lot. But there is another way one can feel isolated. And that is when they put you in situations when they make you think that this torture, whatever it is that they put you under, has no end. And you're in a world that is, there is no before, no after. This is it. And you're, you're all by yourself. And everyone has isolated. Everyone has, has left you. They keep telling you over and over that everyone has betrayed you. And those are the moments that one has to somehow find a way to think about what it is that despite, despite everything remains with you. And that what remains with you, I always say in the worst difficult and, and most painful experiences, there is always something we remember from the time that we knew we loved, that we were loved, or from the time that we know that someone else suffered. Uh, and, and those are the moments that I've tried, I mean, to think about the question of time and memory, for example. Um, Roya was this young woman who, we don't know exactly what happened to, who, to, him, to her, but all we know is that she came to our world and there were moments that she would completely go out of our world and she would start barking on the floor and she would, um, I don't think that is too formal, is that okay? It's too hot here. <laughs> so, and she would basically um, go on barking and crying and asking, thank you so much, crying and asking Sister Bakhtiari, a guard, which, uh, who was a Gohardasht, uh, one of the prison's guards, solitary confinement, not to beat her and not to ask her to bark anymore. And she would go on and on. And then there were other moments 
when she would be in the cell and she would sit there and try to, pro to prepare for supposed people who are coming to visit her. And this, if you have played pantomime, you know how this is. So she would sit there and she would supposedly cook something, make something, put the silver and the plates there. There is no plate, no silver. It would all be, you, would, you could tell from outside what she's doing. She put all of them there. And then she would wait for the guests to come. I don't know why sometimes get the guests, she wouldn't, if it was all in her imagination, why she could not make them come every time. Sometimes they would come and sometimes they would not. The times they would come, you would see her cheerful. She would just become a different person. She would sit with them and she would talk to them. Sometimes she would even end up having arguments with them. But, but she would be and, and she would basically host them and she would be very good host. You could tell that she's really attentive. And there are other times they would not come. So what I have tried to do is to think about what it means to imagine a time that is, like you know, Pierce would say, remains in firstness. A time that never goes out of itself, out of that moment to allow for reflection, to allow for a way of seeing from afar. So for Roya, the time seemed to have either Either she would move to this time in the past and it was as if there was nothing after that time and she would remain there, or she lived in the moment of torture, the torture that constantly was constantly perpetuated in her mind, and there was nothing out of it. In the, those very few moments that you could see her coming out of it and talking about it, it was this very difficult sense of, you know, the imagination that they somehow had taken her brain out or the liquid out of her brain, you know, things like that, that she could not actually think. And in, in contrast with that, I tried to put a different story, a story of our attempt to also have our own parties. The parties that we had had one distinction. We also kind of knew that what we were, having, we were creating there was mostly imaginary, like we had New Year parties, is that right? The things that probably some of us, when we were outside, we would not have necessarily done that much with in, in prison, we would really take them seriously. But the difference between ours and hers was that we, between that imaginative or fantasy, there, was, uh, there were objects. We put our mind into creating something, into making, for example, out of the bread that they would give us, out of the dates that had all those you know, worms in them, we would create cakes, we would, create, we would make sweets, we would, for example, steal, uh, let's say, for example, seeds from, from the, every time we went to visit, you know, visiting our families outside, we would, for example, grab like seeds of flowers, and then we would make flowers. We would put them in these little containers. All that, it allowed us to kind of put our imagination into something, something that seemed real, something more tangible. And that something that was tangible allowed us to not only create bonds, kinships, relationships, 
but also made what we feel, felt kind of more real. And that was why prisoners had such strong investment in handcrafts, in making things. Because the, and, and for that very reason, the, the officials were so against us making anything. They would come to, the, to, the, to our wards, they would destroy everything we had, they would pour all our clothing and everything out just to find this little stone on which we had carved something. For some of us out there, it means, what? Why? Why they were so awful? Why they were doing this? But it was nothing awful about it. They knew this was existential. This wasn't a joke. This was something that if you put your mind and your energy, instead of thinking about torture all the time and your torturer's power, it allowed you to think about your power. It allowed your body and your mind and your imagination work together to bring something out of your life that connected you to, because you didn't make that stone for yourself. You made it for someone else. You took the dates, um, the, the seeds of the dates, and you polished them, and you, 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 you made them into, for example, necklace, and you wrote the name of someone on it, or you, do, you carved a little bit of poem on it. Whatever it is, one word, one date, but that date was significant. That they told you and others that you exist, that you're here, that this moment and this person and, and, and this life matters, and they have not, unlike what uh, you know, Scary would give that kind of power to torture. I love her work, but I, one of the things I try to do here is to say that torture can also be something that doesn't have to be completely totalizing. You can take somehow its power out of it if, if you know that you're not by yourself, that history matters, that memory matters, that time matters, that, 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 something, that if you, something of your relation to others matters. That, that, that those are, I think, the most essential issues when it comes to working. And, and to give this a face, probably children were very significant um, in that sense that in the beginning in 1981 um, to 1983, uh, we had, in the, in the room that I was, um, about 80-something women in a room that... Um, I don't know, like one fourth of this hall you're sitting, or even smaller. Um, we had uh, we had three children only in the room I was in. In the ward, there were 28 children from infancy to seven years old. Somewhere I actually I have actually talked about this, but here I don't want to go to the stories of jail as much. But having them did something to us that I always think was our luxury that men did not have. It was very hard, but when you have children, you have to remain in touch. 
you, in order to teach them, our children did not know, had never seen animals or anything for that matter. Is that right? Probably they just saw crows and once in a while they saw a, a cat that would come and take the pigeons and things like this. But they never had never seen a sheep, a goat, a cow, whatever. Um, and we had to somehow use our creativity to teach them, you know, what it means to live in nature. What is a river? What, is, what, is, what does it mean to think about flowers? Literally, at the time, in the beginning, there were no flowers around us. And we had to bring them to the, uh, to the world, and we had to show them, this is the seed, you put it in the, uh, in the soil, then this happens, that happens. To make them live a life as humanly ordinary as possible for a child to live in jail. Is that right? You had to leave and be in touch and remain in touch. And I think that's also another uh, luxury of the life we had, that we would see these children growing, uh, walking for the first time, talking for the first time, the first word they said, the first uh, something that they draw for the first time. Those were realities that I always think, when I think about jail in the US, it frightens me. It really frightens me. Every time I think about Mumia Abu Jamal, for example, it scares me. And I think, would I have been able to go through that? Years and years of being by yourself and not ever having anything that brings you in relation to the others. So, the, the children. And then there were among us, and this is the irony of the situation, Islamic Republic was so generous with arresting that we had children of 12 years old who had just distributed some flyers somewhere and were there or were in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Guantanamo Bay. And, um, and then there were 70 years, years old women. So someone like me, I had to live a life that is real because how could you live with a grandmother of 70 years old and not realize that this is also life? How could you not live with a kid of 12 years old and, and not share your food, the little food you have? We call them darhale rosht, children who are growing. One of those girls left prison one year before I did. She was in jail for nine years. She was there when she was 15. And when she left, she wrote me a letter as my sister. I don't know how that letter came to me. It was very strange. In which she said, you betrayed me. You never told me I had grown up. You all kept calling me Darhale Rosht in the process of growing up. And I thought I was a kid. And I went out, all my friends have children. But to have that Hale Rosht, because we didn't grow, our relationship to that Hale Rosht and to the old were the same. Is that right? So we, I, I was always like in the middle, and then you had the older and you had the younger. No matter how younger the, the, the young ones grow, in relation to you, they were still younger. So it was this, this feeling that you want to always give part of your food to them. If you had this little meat in the food, you want to give it to them. They were the ones who needed it. You didn't. At least that's what we thought. We didn't need as much as they did. Th these 
are those moments that I cherish when I think about prison. Because those were the moments that allowed me today to think about what it is to live in a place where it frightens me. It literally frightens me when I think about the, the wealth that some of the people are enjoying in this country or anywhere else for that matter. And we just somehow manage to be okay with it. Somehow manage to be okay with the fact that some, of, some people do not have something to eat. So there are many people in this country who, for example, don't have health care. So it makes me feel that way again. It makes me think, what have I done? If they put me in a jail and I saw those people, would, they not, would, would not have I actually attended to them? Why don't I attend to them now? Because I'm, we're not in, in the middle of this wall? Because this wall doesn't seem like a prison? Um, and that is something that I... I keep thinking about because I think, despite everything that people say that prison is, has a horrifying story, I always say, think that there is also something really precious about it. And that is that it reminded me that one can be in jail even when one is not, and one can actually be free when one is really not. How much time do I have, Doctor? No, I don't want to take all the time, and I want to give some time to uh, questions. And but let me d then read one little thing before I finish this. And this is just to, to think about this moment when I, now I was watching Hamid fallen under the feet of these interrogators who were trying to humiliate him for not being man enough. If the pain had allowed me to think then, I would have known in my heart that, unlike them, Hamid would not feel humiliated for a defect in his masculinity. He would be feeling devastated for not being able to protect the love of his life, as he would later write me in a letter in 1986. And I'm quoting from his letter. You are my lover, the harvest of my life, and all I want is to protect you and see you blossom. End of quote. But now I was watching you under these men's feet. How long I have been watching this scene. And I remember when my third grade classmate Hassan's hands are bleeding from the lashes of our teacher. I'm being pushed to choose either his or my suffering. How could I scream loud enough so that all the perpetrators of violence would know that such a distinction is impossible? How many years have I been watching these scenes and been pushed to make these impossible choices? The impossible choice to me, it's been, as I wrote, was exactly this, to keep myself limited to write about prison, to keep myself right in a, 
as a genre. Somebody had written a review to this in Farsi, and I read it. And she says all these wonderful things about it. And but somebody she says is not a, is not a conventional um, genre of prison stories. Um, and I thought if there was one thing that I was trying to do consciously was to avoid to remain entrapped in this conventional prison story. I wanted to actually kind of somehow remind myself that this was about life. This wasn't about some monsters in some particular places who have this particular story. That doesn't mean that I'm not seeing the exceptionality or the particularity of, uh, particularities of these stories. All I'm saying is that to make it exceptional, unfortunately, make us sleep comfortably and make us to somehow forget that this very moment that we live is one of those moments that also requires thinking and reflecting and responding and asking, what should I do? Thank you. Open to any questions you have, please. Very good question. Um, I, I guess a part of it was that even before I went to prison, I was always very fascinated by people, very fascinated by people and the way they live in different cultures, different languages. I was very fascinated by it. But when I came to this country, um, in the beginning, between making the wise decision that we were talking about, of going and becoming an engineering, which was kind of somewhat my background. I was math and physics major. Um, and in four years, making money and you know things like that. And, and deciding how to understand my experience, my life experience, and all that. I, I, I thought, I, I started talking to people about different majors. And from what I understood, it was right after, it was a while after 1986 uh, know, and writing culture. Anthropology had entered this new phase, the phase where um, the, the writing, it, it kind of it had at least criticized its, on the one hand, this colonial past. Is that right? Some extent, as much as possible. On the other hand, it had opened up for a possibility of writing in a way that is also artistic, in a way that is also creative. And I thought, I, wa I was looking for something that, on the one hand, would allow me to think about, as you said, other places, other cultures, other realities in, of other people, but at the same time be able to write in a way that is not kind of this dry, academic, just simple writing about, so this is experience, this is. I was hoping that I would find a way to somehow manage to write both in a way that is uh, somehow cre uh, creative writing 
but at the same time try to understand the experiences. I haven't, I mean, this book particularly, I try to be more interdisciplinary as possible, and I try not to remain in the confine of discipline as, you know, as much as I can, as much as it's possible for one to, to go beyond it. But I think anthropology for me meant something a little bit more exactly, a little bit more open to other possibilities. And those were the possibilities I was seeking, hoping that I would find. Did I answer your question? Yes, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Any other question? I've tried, actually, that's one of the challenges I've tried to, as much as I can, I've tried to show the differences, actually. And I, I have actually talked about it. That this is not something I'm trying to claim that, as you said, forgetting your name is the same as uh, the, creating it, the, uh, the uh, ma ma you know, the machine of creating human being, or whatever they call it, or taboot, or, you know, the coffins, or the graves that they call it. Um, or the, the massacre of 1988. I mean, unbelievable things that there happened. Um, so I'm not trying to um, to kind of write off the exceptionalities of those situations and the monstrous uh, reality that kind of takes over and, and become, and the person literally becomes a non-human as such. Is that right? But the, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes the lines are very blurry and very difficult. And if one does not see what's going on, sometimes seeing these little realities of, for example, kids bullying one another. Is that right? We've seen how strangely sometimes they cross the line and go to the point that we, th we think, how is it possible? How is it possible for a kid to do that? Is that right? So for, for the torturers, I mean, you could see their transformation as well. It wasn't under the Shah where when I entered, they were already established. Here, they were, they were literally transforming in front of you. You could see them in the beginning doing something, going and, and having like their uh, ablution, thinking that they're and praying before they were going to beat you up or something. This ideological sense of what it actually means, they would even talk to one another to say, like, do, do they have to pay some kind of uh, compensation, kafare, you know, something that if you do something wrong, then you have to pay the money supposed to be forgiven for that? I mean, in the beginning, they were actually playing these things, and some of them were taken seriously, that 
there were some torturers who would not beat you unless they took you to the judge and the judge wrote you to lash you 70. I mean, recently you've been seeing the lashing of the Iranian young kids. Is that right? That the guy basically says, they make these distinctions between what is tazir, is that right? And what is hat. So when, if you're actually ta supposedly tazirring someone, is that right? You have to have supposedly Quran. I never saw a Quran in anyone's hand. Supposedly some people had seen him. But supposedly the person had to have a Quran under their arm so that every, every time they, they, they raise their, their arm, supposedly it shouldn't be raised high because then the Quran would fall. And Quran is so sacred that you have to really be careful not to really raise your hand. Is that right? But in Had, which is a punishment, you don't put a Quran under your, your arms. So uh, there were people who actually supposedly even took you to the judge to do that. But there were, soon you, all of them disappeared. Because unfortunately, and this is the very scary part of it, and that's one of the things I talk about, about you seeing the pain and becoming numb to it. You see it over and over. And I tell, for example, the story of this woman, Mahin, who committed suicide, uh, cut her wrist. I, I was the one who found her. I had to undress her. And as I was undressing her, I, 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 I literally, because she was resisting. So I was, in fact, hurting her as I was trying to undress her. So anyways, when we did that, um, after that, the guards were all you know, around us trying to somehow see us crush, see us. We, we, we had to go back and sit around the table, I mean, around the uh, tablecloth, whatever that was that on the floor, and supposedly eat our lunch as if nothing had happened. And it scared me. It st still, every time I think about it, it makes me feel like sick in the stomach because I thought, what if then you pretend? It's a performative act. It has an effect on you. It, it kind of takes a, a tool on you. So after a while, you actually, little by little, you work on yourself so hard. I was someone who never forgot anything. I used to, I used to be called notebook. Okay? But in jail, I worked so hard on myself to forget names, to forget things, that at some point I was taken to the interrogation room. And the interrogator put the paper in front of me and said, write when you were arrested. This is like months after. One, write where you were arrested. One of the questions was where I was arrested. I didn't remember. The place I was arrested, the place that I was living in, it was my place, I didn't remember. And now one of the problems I have in, in my classes is that I have to really work hard to remember my students' name because I had worked so hard to forget them. So there, this, this is the thing. It's difficult, and I understand, and the concern you have is a very real concern. Many people, as you know, have had very difficult time with uh, Hannah Arendt talking about this banality. Is that right? Um, it is a very difficult issue. The issue is not that I'm trying to make them into banal. I'm not trying to say this is the same as that one. All I'm trying to say is that those are the moments that if one does not pay attention to, its for, to their formation, to the way they can develop into something else, 
then the condition happen, uh, arises, and all of a sudden, you, it gets built up on that. The first people, the collaborators who beat up their friends the first time, were not the same people who beat them up the third time, or the tenth time. And th that was basically what I was trying to say. Yes, please. So for a follow-up on the same thing, you said, remind me of the story that on says when he was coming out of the and says that they, some people attacked them in the sheep and thing, and he said, I can forgive them because I think they, that's the only thing they see in their society. But it's hard for me to accept because in every society, there are really different models. Mm -hmm. There are good models, there are bad models. The same torturers could see the prisoners that they're coming from the different side of the model. Mm -hmm. So I do not, I cannot accept that we can easily forgive them because for me they are responsible and they are accountable for they, what they do because at the same moment, there are many other models that, can, that they can follow Mm -hmm. And they can basically progress through that model instead of trying to beat people and get used to it and then next time beat them. So, so I, 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 it's really hard for me to accept that we can somehow, we can understand that, but I don't think we can somehow basically kind of forgive them or make them not be accountable and responsible for what they do. Uh, I comp I mean, okay, so if I were read, um, or I actually came across as if I was suggesting of any, if by any means I was suggesting any forgiveness as such, um, it's, it was my shortcoming in conveying my whatever message that I was trying to convey. When I try to say that we have to, at least I'm trying to be attentive to different dimensions in which society uh, perpetuates violence, institutionalizes violence, in schools, in prisons, in churches, in everyday experiences of our relationship to one another. I mean, in all those different ways. And I don't mean that uh, it, that means that we have, to for, we have to forgive the torturer or that the torturer uh, doesn't, isn't, shouldn't be accountable for that. That's not what I was trying to. Oh, I don't even mean to say that we, it's understandable. I haven't even, I mean, uh, in fact, I was told that I have to now write it, a book, another book, in which I have to try to say what I understand. Um, is that right? I've tried whatever I could. But in the end of the day, it's not something you can ever claim that ra rationally there is a way of understanding what happens to you or how people become who they become. As difficult as it seems, for someone, for example, whose stories I told, Reza, who is beaten up, beaten up, beaten up, and in the end, the guy, the torturer basically says, I don't want anything from you. Just say that I won and you lost. And, and, and he, the last minute, opens his mouth, looks at him, and says, I'm free, you lost, and he dies. There is no explanation for that, is there? There is no explanation. I can understand it. That doesn't mean that I didn't wish that I, that had happened to me somehow, you know. But do you see what I'm saying? The same way, nobody can understand why a torturer would do exactly what I just said. And yet, all our 
social sciences and humanities effort is to somehow find a way to make sense of some of it. Is that right? But I wasn't talking about forgiveness. That is not by any means what I'm trying to talk about. I was trying to somehow show the much more complicated and deeper level of these interconnectivities, the ways these different levels of our society um, makes is isolate us. The fact that they teach you and I that, that I have to be really work for myself and I have to somehow find a way to accomplish what I want. And that accomplishment somehow has to happen at the you know, expense of the others. That is something that I feel is something that we have to be aware of. We have to think about. This, am I making sense? Yes. Until you're familiar with this Zimbardo experiment. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the capacity for proof claimed that it's a deeply seated psychological disposition with those people who are not enlightened. Mm -hmm. But as I listen to you, you seem to have a great deal of compassion. And I'm curious as how do you find that? How, how, how do you go about your life every day having the compassion, thinking about I mean, I don't know if I have compassion. That I cannot speak to. But, uh, but in fact, well, this is exactly the other side of the story. I think we usually, um, the stories are told one-sidedly. Is that right? For example, that particular experience does not, keep in, does not keep in mind that those people were just subjects of a particular test that they thought supposedly they were only following particular orders. That is true that it's horrifying, is that right? But I've seen the other way around. I've also seen people who are not tolerant of watching others suffer. In jail, we were, many of us were beaten up because we didn't want to watch our friends be, be, be tortured. Um, and, and, and many of the people and the story of Reza particularly is one of those stories. He uh, would save his share because they want to beat him up for a longer period. They would give him milk and, and sugar, cube sugar. He would save the cube sugar and he would give to the women or other people who were being tortured and would pass. They were much more transitory than he was. He would give it to them and he would say, they're going to kill me and I'm going to die. I don't need this. So you have it. They would, he would give them instructions of how to really deal with the torture so that it wouldn't really destroy them. He would teach them how to massage their, their feet, for example, so that the feet doesn't go bad too, too fast. Do you see what I'm saying? Not everyone gives, away, gives, up, uh, gives up. Not everyone submits. And that, those are the realities. Do you see what I'm saying? And that is exactly the case in jail. Let me give you one little example. It's, to me, it's, I've never understood it. We had 28 children. One of these children 
had this amazing investment in owning things only for him, for herself. And imagine in jail, there is nothing. We had no toys, we had nothing. But anything from just little pillow, she would say, this is mine. And it would be hers to anything else. We all sat and worked so hard. The day of her birthday, she was becoming three years old. We, we created this what little thing, Shahre Farang, do you remember Shahre Farang? Uh, you know, this little thing that you basically put pictures in them and they, they rule. So if you kind of, uh, what do you call it, rotate this thing, it kind of becomes magic, magic lantern. Exactly. See? So we made this. That, that magic lantern told through a painting of one of our wonderful, wonderful, actually, painter, whose painting is also in this one and the other woman, who was this, that Hale Rosh kid. They painted this story of the kid who wouldn't play with others. And anyways, I mean, we ended up through all this story to finally say how bad it is to only possess something and not to give it to, to it. We read her the entire story, and then she got this and said, this is mine. I, I never understood. I never understood. And there were kids who anything you gave them, they shared with you. This is awful for me to say it. Is that right? Because somehow I'm, I'm somehow suggesting that there is something genetic about it. I'm not trying to say that. But I always think to myself that for me, if there was anything, was my dad and my mom, they never, ever, ate one bite without making sure their children had before them. Yes. Um, it's really saddened to hear about your story and others who served jail sentences with you. And I haven't read your book, unfortunately. But I want to know, where do you make the comparison between a freedom fighter who's been arrested in Iran and somebody who's a Taliban terrorist serving in Guantanamo who's been arrested during the war? Very good question. Um, the, you know that in Guantanamo, there are people who were not actually, now it's clear, at the time it wasn't, and you're right. At the time when they were arrested, they were all seen as uh, tal the Taliban fighters. Is that right? So in that sense, you're right. Many of, now that the new research has shown, many of those people had nothing to do with the war, and they were just in the wrong place. And some of them were actually like 14, 15 years old kids who had never fought. So to some extent, they were in, in, they were in, in, in Afghanistan. They were in a bad place. Is that right? But again, when I say these things, and I completely understand that I have come across as if I'm not seeing the differences in these situations. Believe me, it's not like I'm trying to say this is exactly like that. What I was trying to, be, to do was to be provocative. To say that these stories are stories that each of them should make us, at least they make me stop. How many of you have watched, for example, Ghosts of Abu Ghraib? That movie makes me shiver to my bones. When they talk to this woman who has taken, they, you know, that they made a pyramid of these naked bodies on the top of one another, of prisoners, and this woman took pictures of them. They interviewed this woman, and she says, I just like to take pictures. So I just took pictures. It was nothing particular. You, and then she poses in front of those bodies. That humiliation, that the fact that somebody, no matter what that person has done, the fact that you are capable of doing that, to me, 
should make every single one of us shiver. And if it doesn't, no matter what they say about that prisoner, they told, do you think that they told the, our, our family or others that I had just read books? Do you think they, no, uh, for them, they also said we were all, I mean, the, the Islamic Republic never even once had accepted. Every time we said we were political prisoners, we were beaten up. The day that they were releasing me, that wasn't a real release. In the room, they said, Ittaham, your accusation. I said, I was a political prisoner. And the guy said, you know that we never had a political prisoner in this jail. They never accepted. The 15-year-old for them was a, a terrorist. Or at the time, they didn't call him a terrorist. They called him Muhareb, Bahuda. They called him something. But they, all of us, according to them, had gone against the Islamic Republic to overthrow the Islamic Republic. And for that reason, we were all dangerous prisoners. What I'm saying is that in the end of the day, that's actually partly I have talked about, tried to talk about, that we talk about white torture, enhanced interrogation techniques. I actually start the book talking about this woman who under the Shah, you know that under the Shah from 1977, the, the torture as such, at least in the main prisons, disappeared because of the Red Cross that, that came to Iran. Is that right? The inspectors came to prison, they, the, the kind of, that kind of. They, 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 the, the torture they used was sleep deprivation, making you stand up on your feet for long duration. They brought a woman to my cell who was on her feet for 24 days. I don't know if you can ever imagine what she looked like. Her feet were like a huge truck. I had not even seen my own feet after torture that huge. She had no sense of where she was. She had no sense of what's happening to her. That was white torture. You know how many times they use waterboarding in this country? You know in regular domestic situations what happens in this country. And that's not what I'm, I'm not trying to put this to this other direction. I was just using that as an example to say exactly, to be exactly provocative. To say that no matter who you're talking about, what prison system we're talking about, we have to be really concerned about these realities. Yes. cultural anthropologist, you, you are trying to sort of illustrate a sort of thread of violence, which is sort of part of the culture and accepted norm uh, from early on. And if there is any similarity or differences between Iranian culture versus others or Middle Eastern versus mm. others. So um, I was trying as a cultural anthropologist, I mean, uh, to trying to kind of go deeper into the culture of violence. But I wasn't trying to talk about the culture of violence, particularly in Iran. I do not, uh, there are distinctions and, dis and differences, 
but there are different kinds of violence that happens in different places. What I was trying to talk about was, in fact, to show how interconnected on the one hand and how much more deeply and much more diversely violence has been sp spread into our system. And I don't think that that's simply only about Iran, even though Iran has its own, unfortunately, too much of deep share of that. Of course, for example, I mean, you know that in England, the schools could not go without beating the kids. That was part of their pedagogy. Is that right? It changed. In Germany, that was the same. In church system, we know that part of their training was, was beating up kids. Is that right? So what we had in Iran wasn't something very exceptional. It was just a little bit, the timing was a little bit stretched further and closer to us. Is that right? But there is this other side. I don't know how many of you actually work with the children at schools and how many of you actually follow them. I mean, the peer pressure among the children and the bullying among the, among the children are horrifying. What they do to one another are literally horrifying. So um, again, I'm not trying to say, this, to say that this is the same as, as torture. But I would tell you that the fact that that kid that goes, for example, to uh, this uh, same story of taking that picture, that becomes so easy, is the same, is not as, not the same, that's not the word, but is not as unbelievably different if you think about how these kids put each other's, you, you know that now, now what, what they do with the Facebook. They, they do things to one, one another that is unbelievable. So when one thinks about how much you must have really gone through life in stages of life and kind of take violence as almost a simple ingredient that to, to, get, to get to that space that is not just anger. It's not just people say, you know, September happened, we were angry, we went and do, did this. I was angry too. I mean, you ask, for example, a question of compassion. Is that right? Has nothing, I mean, it's not as much about compassion. But there was this one moment in jail when I was so angry. They beat me up in front of my father and my mother. And this was the worst thing. Is that right? I mean, in, in, in the meeting room, in the visiting room. So everyone was around. I was so angry, so angry. I thought, God, I mean, I want to do something. I went to my cell. I was going crazy. I went to my cell and I thought, okay, take a moment and think about it. Think, put yourself in a situation where you have all the power in the world and think what you're going to do. And the moment that I imagined myself powerful enough to do whatever I want to do without consequences, I realized this is not me. I cannot do it. Do you see what I'm saying? But if you get used to this, and if you see that if you're angry, you can easily project it on someone else, inflict that pain on someone else, there are people who do that. Is that right? And nowadays, what is the significance of this for me? I'm more, much more sensitive towards regular violence than I used to be. A simple verbal abuse to me means a lot. I don't know if you notice, if those of you who have read the book, you probably realize that I, when I put F, F word, I have a few uh, dots afterwards. I don't use the word completely. I have always had a hard time with this. Recently, I thought, why? And probably the only reason I kind of figured out why 
was because I was writing another paper about this child whose name also appears here, Bahar, who, while in jail, she did not talk. She did not speak a word except one word, which was amama, which basically for her was mama, meaning mother. When she left prison, she was already past her third year, birthday, when she left. Half an hour later, she was already speaking. Okay? And she was speaking a language completely like an adult. So I write about this, and I try to analyze this. But I also say something there this, that made me think about this other thing. I th that day, I thought, the reason that she probably didn't want to talk was she had seen this language that was the, the, the mother or the others were being beaten up to speak. And then there were times that she, they would speak to one another and they would be beaten up not to speak. First of all, there is this confusion. Then I thought, why she's coming to my story? Why her story is so important to me? And I thought, it's the question of language. For a while, I didn't want to write in a language that to me at the time was the language of the killers. And I'm not saying that language is the only language of that. That Farsi is the language of the killer and English is the language of whatever. That language to me at the time was too close to the killing. And then I thought, for that very reason, language is very significant to me. And when I use that word, I feel like I fall because the interrogators constantly use those words. And I thought, it's as if I'm making myself like them by using these words. So somehow I thought I want to take back and be a, use a different language. I've tried really hard not to come across as harsh, because you cannot not be harsh when you're talking about something like this. But I purposefully decided not out of this fashion for forgiveness, in fact. My concern wasn't forgiveness. I wasn't a judge to say to forgive or to forget or this. Obviously, I was not going to forget. Is that right? And it's not about forgiveness. This is not an issue of, you know, taking to the court and thinking, can one forget or can one have some kind of reconciliation? This was much beyond that. This story to me was the story of, do I want to actually really think what it means to, every time it's put, what it means to actually really uh, concern yourself with the much more difficult issues that are much deeper than to say, so is this the same as beating up like that one? Is that right? It's much deeper than that. And no, I didn't want to say, claim that Iran was a, an exception. Iran has its exceptional story. Is that right? And we were talking today, you know, unfortunately, it has become even more, much, much more exceptional because it has become this convoluted politics of, of, of lies and everything that comes with that, that has created its own dimension, that it's also violent. Yes? Did you have fewer dreams in prison than before? I'm sorry? I had different kinds of dreams. 
dreams in prison change a lot. Uh, in the beginning, when I was in solitary confinement, the, the very early uh, phase of my arrest, um, most of my dreams were about escaping. Um, I would dream about being chased, and I'm trying to escape, and I would run and run and run, and somehow uh, there was usually a water involved. And then I would wake up and realize that I'm still in jail, and then the body, my body would ache, and you know things like that. Um, later, the dreams. Later, for the first eight months or so, I had a very hard time sleeping, anyways, uh, because the place was very com small, as I said, and I had a light sleep, so it became very difficult for me to sleep in the f first few, few months. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I I dreamed probably more when I left. Not the first few years after I left. I dreamed more than ever in two times in my life. One was after September 11, and one was after the 2009 Iranian events. The 2009. Okay, I guess um, you're done. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.